The No Film School podcast was brought to you by Black Magic, creating revolutionary solutions for film, post-production, and television. And by Rode Microphones, your partner in podcasting. Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, and today on the podcast we have a very special interview we did with Dan Mervish, who is one of the co-founders of Slam Dance. If you're not familiar with Slam Dance, you definitely should be. It's one of the great film festivals for up-and-coming filmmakers. Um, they really prioritize people starting out, working with less, um, and creating a community, especially at the festival itself, which is in Park City at the same time as Sundance every year. Um, so I had a chance to sit down with Dan and talk to him about how Slam Dance started, why it started, um, the history of it, how they've interacted with Sundance over the years, and what their goals are going forward. Um, but Dan is also a prolific independent filmmaker in his own right. He's been at it at it the indie way, I should add, for decades, um, continuing to create and release indie features really on his terms, um, going through it, the DIY to some extent route. Um, but it's also important to note that Slamdance has had many, many great talents come through. Um, Christopher Nolan, the Russo brothers, um, and many more. Um, not to mention that even though Steven Soderbergh is a huge Sundance figure, obviously, he's had plenty of stuff come through Slamdance as well. And I think he would probably say it's a little closer to his spirit in certain ways. Um, so we're excited about Slamdance 2020 just as much as we are about Sundance 2020. It's a great place for filmmakers, Slamdance that is, to um, interact and come together with one another because the vibe of it networking wise is is a little less industry focused and a little more craft focused so if you're looking for collaborators or if you're looking to meet people who are sort of starting out and finding unique and new ways of doing things slam dance is a great place for that uh and it all happens at this one hotel at the top of the hill at Park City while Sundance is also happening. So anyway, hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan. He's great. We've had many of his posts on No Film School uh, that he's authored about his work and about Slamdance, and we'll have them again this year. Um, so enjoy, and please check back for all of our Sundance and Slamdance coverage coming up in 2020. We'll have plenty of interviews, podcasts, coverage of films, and conversations about what's going on. I want to talk about a lot of things, but mostly about how Slam Dance started and Slam Dance's mission statement and what's happening with Slam Dance this year, 25th anniversary. Okay. So um, I know you've probably you've told the story a lot. <laughs> no, that's all I've right. read it a few times, and I know you have the book, but I really want to sort of recap for some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with it how Slam Dance. Because so a lot of people I meet know that Slam Dance exists. It's one of the big festivals on everyone's list to submit to. They know it happens. It's They know it's somehow around Sundance, but I don't think people recognize one of the funniest things about Slam Dance that I've learned is that it's literally right, like you say, a snowball's throw away <laughs> from everything that's happening with Sundance. It's right there at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that was really the point because we had, um, you know, we started in January 95, so this is our 25th year uh, or our 25th festival that we've been doing it. And, um, and you know, back in in '95, you know, it was, it was kind of a different environment in the indie film world. It was it was kind of a real interesting transition phase between you know, uh, sort of the the you know, Sundance had, had kind of got on the map in 1989 with Sex Lies and Videotape, Steven Soderbergh's film, and then in the early '90s there were you know all these great filmmakers coming out of it, like um, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and, and Richard Linklater. And, but by 95, um, you know, Sundance was so kind of preeminent that um, that if you got into Sundance, you know, you could, you know, 
win the lottery essentially you could you could get a distribution deal get an agent um you know uh, get your next deal made uh, you know find romance you know all these <laughs> things uh to say it politely um and uh but there were a lot fewer festivals at the time. So if if you didn't, and and by the way, not every you know filmmaker at Sundance you know would that happen right. to. But if you didn't go to Sundance, that definitely would not happen. You know, it was it was before <laughs> the internet. Um, it was before the internet. It was before people could find out about indie films. It was before you know thousands more festivals came up. Um, and uh, you know, it was even before Toronto was a, as big of a deal as it was. Um, uh, it was before South by Southwest was showing films. Um, we hadn't started yet. So, uh, you know, I, I at one point had a, a, a f- I mean, I had done a film called Omaha the Movie, which um, uh, it was it was the first feature that was at, counted as a thesis film at USC where I was a grad student. Uh, but it was, it was a full-on indie feature. And uh, my producing partner was uh, Dana Altman, who happened to be Robert Altman's grandson. So that was, that was cool. So Robert Altman was kind of our mentor on the film. And, but we shot it all like with no-name people in, in Nebraska on film because that was the only way to do it. You know, yeah. we, we shot 35? on 35? Yeah, we oh, were on yeah. 35 mil and using Panavision cameras, and we actually edited it on the Paramount lot. They gave us a free edit suite at Paramount with, like, all the upright moviolas from 1935 we could use, you know. That's just <laughs> so, amazing. But it was great because, you know, we were on the Paramount lot, which was pretty awesome. And um, But anyway, so we'd finished this film, and then at the time – Um, kind of the paradigm was that you would go to what was then called the Independent Feature Film Market, the IFFM, which is now called IFP Week, um, in New York around September, beginning of September, end of August or something. And every, all the indie filmmakers would bring their films there, you know, bring their prints and, um, and show the film mainly to festival programmers and distributors. And the main festival programmers you wanted to to see it there were the Sundance programmers. Right. And then, and the, so the year before, for example, Kevin Smith had taken clerks there. Uh, Sundance programmers had seen it. They invited him, and he became the next Kevin Smith. You know? <laughs> the rest <laughs> you is know, history. Clerks took off, and that was great, you know, which was fantastic for Kevin. So by 95, uh, sorry, 94, September of 94, you know, we went there with our film, Omaha the Movie. You know, there were 95, 94 other completed features there, plus they showed works in progress. And, um, you know, at our screening, which was a packed screening, Robert Altman came, which was great. Um, you know, we had a distributor, like a, a good, solid indie distributor from the time, I don't know, Samuel Goldwyn Company or one of those, yeah. and say, you know, we love the film, we want to distribute it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes. You know, she said, ah, but if, if it gets into Sundance. I was uh. like, wait, what? She's like, oh, yeah, if it doesn't get into Sundance, we don't want it. You know, I was like, oh. Well, are you going to help us get into Sundance? No, no, we're not going to do that. (laughs) So, and this was actually someone who's the acquisitions person there who had previously been a programmer at Sundance. So she, she knew the ins and outs of, of, of the scene back then. So, well, we had heard of a couple individual filmmakers the year before. Um, so in, uh, you know, January 94, who had shown up at, uh, in Park City, didn't get their didn't get their films into Sundance, and did their own little renegade screenings. So there were there were a couple people that had done this. So uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, you know, later Heard to be them. known as the <laughs> South Park guys. Well, their thesis film out of the University of Colorado was a great film called Cannibal the Musical. Yeah, I've and seen that. Um, yeah, it's an amazing film. And for whatever reason, Sundance didn't take it in '94. So they rented. I can think their, of a few reasons. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> and they rented their own screening room just in a hotel. And this is way before South Park. Nobody knew who these guys were, and you know they got a little bit of attention. A couple of people showed up, you know, and and talked about them. There was another guy named James Marandino showed his first film. Uh, you know, he, later he would do SLC Punk and a bunch of other films, yeah. but his first film was called The Upstairs Neighbor. He did the same thing. He showed up in a hotel room, and then there was this group of guys uh, led by Matthew Harris. Uh, in New York who had this uh, little collective called Film Crash and for like two or three two or three times in the early 90s they would show up in Park City and do little uh, short compilations of these you know underground New York East Village you know films and um, so we had heard about all these guys kind of individually and this was kind of in the back of our mind that was kind of our plan B like okay you know, we think we're going to get into Sundance, but all you other filmmakers, <laughs> yeah, good luck. You might want to think about this kind of plan B, you know, like yeah. just showing up anyway. Um, because we really, we owed it to our investors, we owed it to our actors, we owed it to ourselves that, you know, if we didn't show up at Sundance, you know, what was the point? Because 
you know, uh, because what th the scene was like then was that, you know, other regional festivals in the U.S., and there were still some, um, and international festivals, if they wanted to show a group of American independent f uh, films, features, they would just take the Sundance program guide, again, this is before the internet, they, and then just contact those filmmakers. So this, it was great for Sundance filmmakers because they would just travel the circuit as, yeah. as a group, pretty much. So, and premiere um, status wasn't important to those other festivals. Exactly, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but, but meanwhile, the other sort of big trends that were going on at the time was that, um, you know, around that time of 1995, that was Miramax had just sold to Disney. Um, uh, uh, Fine Line had just become part of Warner Brothers. Fox was about to launch Fox Searchlight. So it was kind of the Hollywoodization of independent film. Mm -hmm. That was the high point of it. You know, these indie films were winning Oscars and stuff. So all of a sudden there was this, uh, you know, much greater pressure, I think, on Sundance to show films by second-time directors with bigger budgets, bigger stars, and, and bigger potential for distribution or films that already had distribution going into the festival. And so because of that, they wound up... Um, uh, uh, you know, picking um, n literally zero films out of the IFFM that year, or zero of the 95 completed feature films, not a single one got into Sundance. There was one work in progress called Brothers with Mullen that got in. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but it largely got in because Fox Searchlight was about to launch with that film. Right. And so they sort of helped usher it in. So, um, so we were st we were all stunned, and and there had been a group of us indie filmmakers from around the country that had met at the IFFM, and uh, my producing partner Dana Altman, who who lives in Omaha, still lives in Omaha, um, you know, he was really isolated from the rest of the indie filmmaking community at the time, um, and so he, we decided to have this meeting, this grassroots meeting of <laughs> indie filmmakers uh, at the Angelica in the lobby, and a lot of people still remember this meeting, you know, just to kind of figure out like what kind of grassroots thing can we do to communicate with each other and stay in touch and support one another and we didn't we never really came up with an answer you know we were just like yeah we got to do something and this is before indie wire this is before yeah. email really had taken off so um but that kind of planted the seed so one of the other filmmakers that was there shane coon who had directed the film a film called redneck that uh, maddie libatique was a dp on the okay. oscar nominee yeah. Maddie libatique um uh but th and they had all, it was his afi thesis film basically who had also shot in nebraska and also was editing in la but anyway so when um when sundance didn't uh, announce their decisions and none of our films got in shane had the idea to kind of combine this plan b idea of showing individually in park city with kind of dana's collectivist idea of helping each other and said hey why don't we get like a dozen feature filmmakers and combine our resources, you know, because some people have press connections, some people know how to project, right. you know, our projectionists, and uh, you know, different things like that, and 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 do something in Park City. Come to Park City, do our own festival, and then Shane's partner uh, Brandon Kells came up with the the name for Slam Dance, which was great. You know, yeah. we're like that's going to look awesome on a T-shirt in 25 years. You know, <laughs> and it still does. It does. Um, and uh, yeah, and then uh, and then shortly. Thereafter, you know, we sort of announced it. It was in Variety, um, and uh, uh, of course, we didn't have a website or a phone number or anything. So Variety did mention that I was working uh, selling uh, VCRs at, at the Good Guys Electronics Store in Westwood. So people started to show up there that's, and just bring me tapes. That's one of the best parts. Yeah, which is just kind of bizarre. <laughs> um, uh, and then they were bringing you their submissions. Were their submissions. VHS tapes they handed off to you at a Good Guys at where a good you were guys, selling TVs. Where I was selling TVs, and then I would put them on the the big screen TVs, <laughs> and like me and the other guys at the this other salesman would watch them, and then that was your programming. That was programming. Yeah, <laughs> it was very strange. Uh, yeah, and there was one time in particular where I, I was selling a, a seven-inch black and white like uh, kitchen television to Kevin Pollock, um, <laughs> who was about to go to Sundance with The Usual Suspects, and uh, wow. and like people kept coming in and like dropping off tapes. He's like, "What kind of operation is this, man?" And I was just trying to upsell him on the five-year extended warranty because that's where the commissions were, right? And God bless Kevin, he paid for the five-year warranty. I hope his TV's still okay. But um, but anyway. But he was like, "Why is this?" guy getting anonymous VHS tapes handed off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, like, I sold a VCR or something to Sam Rubin, who was, like, the entertainment reporter at KTLA. And right. so then he started writing, you know, saying stuff about <laughs> Slam Dance. You know, that was how he did it. 
Um, but AOL was just starting, and right. they had picked up the Variety article. So, uh, like Eugene Martin, who's a Philly, uh, Philadelphia filmmaker, like he had AOL. He was, you know, so he's <laughs> like, so we started getting like submissions from New York and Philadelphia, and um, and then Paul Rackman uh, heard about us. He had a short film called Drive Baby Drive. So he approached us. He was in LA at the time. He said, "Oh, you know, you guys should really show short films." We're like, why should we show short films? We have enough trouble with like a dozen features. He's like, well, my producing partner is a projectionist. We're like, I guess we're showing short films. <laughs> so that so that kind of launched, our, you know, and then we had a dozen short films, which is great because, you know, the more the merrier and, and people did bring different, you know, And shorts have since have really become a way that filmmakers cut their teeth, learn what they're doing right exactly. and wrong, develop yeah. their concepts for features. It's like a great training ground. It, exactly. And especially for Slamdance and, and Park City in general, so many of our most successful alumni are, are, you know, became successful because of the shorts, you know, Napoleon Dynamite started as a slam dance short, you know, things like, things like that. Um, so there's uh, almost like, there's too many to mention. Yeah. Really <laughs> it's are. like, as you could go on with so many people, uh, nobody alumni. realizes that they started at slam dance because it's, they started with really like kind of experimental or like their learning process yeah. films at slam dance and slam dance creates a, culture and an opportunity for filmmakers to do just that it doesn't like you don't have to already be making your way in the industry like you do at Sundance and what's yeah. amazing about the story is that that was true about Sundance as far as long ago as 1996 yeah because a lot of people today will talk about Sundance you know it doesn't feel like it really makes room for the true independent right. who's just starting out and people feel that today but that's been true for nearly it's been true years. for a long time <laughs> i mean I, if anything it's more true now in the sense that now sundance has all these great labs that they do which are yes. great but because of that then they're sort of you know inherently obligated to show so many films that have gone through their own labs uh, again which is great in and of itself and perfectly good films but it's it's left out you know, it's left fewer and fewer slots for, you know, so this random filmmaker from Oklahoma City, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, and th those filmmakers feel much more at home submitting to and being a part of Slam Dance because yeah. we, just because our submission process, we don't have any labs, we don't track filmmakers, we're like, you know, we don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Well, in a way, the festival is the lab. Yeah. You know, in a yeah. way, the festival yeah, you're is right. the you're place right. where the learning and the connections happen. And I, you know, the, the culture, the, the vibe, if you will, in the Treasure Mountain Inn versus the vibe on Main Street is very different. It's people who are filmmakers exchanging business cards and meeting and like, yeah. oh, yeah, I liked your film, I liked your this, and they're kind of like networking in a very, it's just a different kind of networking. I don't know how else to describe it than is happening elsewhere at like the, you know, Chase Sapphire Lounge. <laughs> it's just a very, very different vibe. And I yeah. think that that's kind of like, it's closer to something like a lab where filmmakers are learning about each other and about what they're doing. Well, and they're and finding collabor you know, future right. collaborators. I mean, this is Slam Dance is where Christopher Nolan met Wally Pfister, who, you know, wound up DPing his next 10 films, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is where, uh, yeah, I mean, this is where Steven Soderbergh met the Russo brothers. This is, you know, this is where, um, I mean, I found my last two cinematographers and my last two producers and some of my actors, um, you know, for my last two films here at Slamdance. So it's, it's a, you know, it's an ongoing community of filmmakers. You so know, yeah, for you, one of the co-founders still making features and still meeting the people you're working with at Slamdance. It's like a renewing source of yeah. inspiration and talent. Yeah, no, I think I met my lead actress for my next film here. She doesn't know it yet, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly, you know, um, yeah, I mean, already I just this morning got a contact from a casting director who did one of the competition films here because I really liked her casting work and I need a casting director for the next film. So, yeah, it's already started to happen. You know, yeah, for so this year. like for those, for, for a lot of our audience, people who are looking for ways to get connected to other filmmakers, reasons to go, say, to Park City, to spend the money to be there, to yeah. see stuff, to meet people. One of the reasons is that, at a place like Slamdance, there's a there's a greater opportunity to find the other people you might work with. You may not have it. You have to be at a, a slightly different place in the industry to right. be doing that with some of these Sundance events. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing too that I recommend to, you know, no film school viewers and listeners and readers or, yeah, right. Yeah, we have readers. Um, uh, <laughs> is is you know because I hear this from a lot of filmmakers like oh I'm not going to go to Sundance you know in Park City until I until my film is in, and no film festivals you should go before you make your films you know or I, before that you're echoing a sentiment i held 
in my heart for years. This yeah. is my first time up here. Oh, okay. And right. all my life I always thought, I'm not going to that place until I have a movie there. Yeah, yeah. And I realized almost as soon as I got here how foolish that is because right. if you go and you see stuff, not just meeting people, right, you're seeing see, what's there. Yeah, and why getting inspired. Pro- right, and why are they programming these things? Yeah. What's the kind of thing they're looking for? What's the mm-hmm. kind of thing, what's the vibe at Slamdance? What are the yeah. features like? What are the artists like, right. you know? And if you don't know that, then you're working in a vacuum and you mm-hmm. lack the inspiration and connection. Yeah, because if, you know, if you're just relying on Netflix, you're never going to see 90% of the <laughs> Slamdance or Sundance films. Even, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, exactly. And there's so many, like, great panel discussions at both Sundance and Slamdance and, you know, and, and, and you know, parties and hot tub summits and things like <laughs> that. Um, that, uh, you know, in South by Southwest, is a similar vibe. Like, you can learn a lot just by going to these events. Yeah, places, I mean, I know. think that, you know, since things have opened up in the festival world dramatically, yeah. you know, and Slamdance is sort of like one of the, the energy. So when I was in undergrad in, you know, early 2000s, early aughts, I guess they call yeah. it, um, I had a film professor who was talking about, she was a documentarian, and she was saying, like, Try to get something into Slam Dance. Go to Slam Dance. Oh, really? And it's like, I remember hearing about it who, at that who time. Who was that? I is, forgot her name. Oh, <laughs> she was it? a guest instructor who oh, came okay. down. Oh, okay. All right. Like, well, cool. But she, wasn't a, she, was, she was just doing a documentary seminar yeah, yeah, yeah. semester with us. Right, okay. And I cool. remember that's where I heard about Slam Dance because oh, okay, I was like, neat. what is Slam Dance? Yeah. And it was like then, then you know, within the next uh, five years or so, like more and more of my awareness of festivals yeah. were bl- blowing up and then without a box app. Like right. all these things happened. In that decade, I feel like that made festivals all over the place more accessible right, to everyone. Right. The internet, basically. yeah, and and you know, and I think one of the things we're most proud of at Slamdance is that you know when we when we launched in '95, we started to break that Sundance hegemony, certainly as far as helping filmmakers get into other festivals. You know, because now regional and international festivals were like, oh, wait, oh, there's more than just Sundance out there <laughs> for American independent films? Oh, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. And they started to take our films and, and put them into their festivals. But also, the year we st- within that kind of year that we started was also this, the, the year that South By started uh, films, um, the New York Underground Film Festival launched, the Chicago Underground Festival oh, your launched. Start, your first year was South By's first year? Pretty much. They started oh, in uh, February or March of 94, and we were January 95. So, uh, and then, in fact, you know, I took my film, Omaha the Movie, to South By, you know, played South By okay. uh, in their second year. You know? Okay. So, yeah, they, South By had been a music festival for, many, for right. like a decade or right. something. So it was already on the map there. But the, as far as um, launching the film side, that was pretty new. Yeah. Um, but also the Hamptons Festival launched, the L.A. Film Festival right. launched. Um, so there was kind of like this blossoming. Like we weren't the only ones who realized, hey, wait a minute, Sundance has a stranglehold. You know? But you were the ones who were here and then got to be called a parasite. Yes. <laughs> Robert Redford famously called us parasites. But, I, you know, and he's right. We are. I mean, but I look at it like we're like the... You know, the beautiful green moss stuck to the, the giant oak tree, you know, yeah. it just makes the whole forest look nicer, you know. Yes. So that's a good um, metaphor. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, I it's think it's really part of the bigger picture of what's happening here. It enriches, yeah. like you're saying, it enriches the culture of what's happening at Park City these couple of weeks, right. and it expands the offering. So, like, yeah. people should be aware if you come up to see stuff at Sundance, you're not, you have an opportunity to see stuff also at right. Slamdance, and then that's going to open you up to different kinds of content, too. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, we didn't we didn't invent the the wheel either. I mean, in in 1969 or 68, uh, a group of uh, French directors didn't get into Cannes, and they started Directors Fortnight. Well, 50 right. years later, that is still a separately organized event that happens in Cannes. And then Critics Week is is started by a bunch of disgruntled critics, you know, right. in the 62, <laughs> and that's still going on. So you know, we have a ways to go before we <laughs> you know make it to 50 years, but. Um, but it's, you know, that was a great precedent. And, and internationally, a lot of filmmakers are like, oh, Slamdance is like the director's fortnight of, of Sundance. Like, and if anything, that made Sundance look more like Cannes, you yeah. know, uh, and that helped put Park City on the map in a way. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I think cause so I think an interesting person to look at career wise in, in terms of Sundance and Slamdance, we were talking about this back at our apartment the other night, is Steven Soderbergh because he really made the movie that built that, that built Sundance. Yes, yeah, like the movie that sort of turned yep. it industry. Yep, exactly. And then he came here. Yeah. And yeah. then he became intertwined with the identity of this event. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating. <laughs> it is. Just yeah. in terms of how it, just 
in terms of what happened to you, if you want to push the envelope, if you want to push the medium, it was like, well, you can't really do it. He did it there to such an extent that then they, then it became cemented sort of. Mm-hmm. And then it was mm-hmm. like, well, I'll go over here now because this yeah. is where you can. And, now, and that's renewable. Yeah. It's a renewable source of pushing the envelope. <laughs> yeah. No, as, it, as we saw with the movie he screened. But it's like right. he has a movie he produced. I think it's just such a funny juxtaposition. There's yeah. a movie he produced down there, yeah. down the street. Oh, really? He, okay. The, I don't if The report, I think, he's like a producer on it. But oh, he's okay. up here with, with Slam Dance. a movie yeah. s- at Slamdance that's pushing us in a new place. He's yeah. shot on an iPhone. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. Um, yeah, and he's, you know, I mean, I met him at South by a month after we started Slamdance, and, and I thought he was Mr. Sundance, that he was going to hate us. And right. then I met him, and he was like, oh, man, I love you guys. I love what you're all about. And I want to bring Greg Mottola's film, Day Trippers, because he had just produced that. And I want to bring this crazy whack film schizopolis that he was doing here. <laughs> and then he brought that in 97. So, yes. Uh, and, and then, you know, we were in the back of the screening room, you know, projecting uh, day trippers together. And I, you know, and we had to fix the projectors together. Like, Stephen was on the floor like, Mervish, screwdriver, <laughs> screwdriver, you know, pliers, pliers, you know, hatchet, hatchet, you know. And like, bzz, you know, we'd electrocute ourselves. And, and then he got up at the end of the screening and he, on the back of a chair, like stood up and said, I vow that next year I'm going to help slam dance get real projectors and we're like yay you know and he did he he hooked us up with uh this company boston light and sound that got us real projectors for the next 10 years it was the same company that supplied projectors to sundance so yeah um so that you know i mean his help has been very tangible in a very direct way but i think um, in the same i think there's a there's also like a give and take because it created a space that he could go and make the kinds of movies and find the kind yeah. of talent which he did yeah slam dance helps him by bringing in filmmakers that he identifies their talent and then he brings them to us like Christopher Nolan yeah. or like the Russo brothers exactly. like, yeah, yeah. so it's like a very like fertile farm system it, it really has been for, and for Hollywood or for just filmmaking in general well and for Sundance I mean a lot of our filmmakers have you know I mean by definition Slamdance has been very strict at least in our competition sections they have to be first time directors with low budgets and with no distribution in place um, so by definition most of them can't show their second films here I mean we have a few slots for out of competition films that you know that we we do show but um, but for the most part their second films if it you know, we'll, you know, a lot of them get into Sundance. And, um, you know, I mean, that happened with, with Nolan, that happened with, with Ryan Johnson, with the root. Well, I don't know about the Russos, but, um, but with a lot of filmmakers and, uh, Lynn Shelton, um, uh, uh, Ben Zeitlin, you know, uh, yeah, you know, right. a lot of people, I, I think uh, one of Drake the... Deramus, um, what and was what Jeremy Sonier, uh, Zeitlin did three short films at Slamdance, including one that we produced with him. Okay. Like he did kind of for slam dance, okay. so he was very much part of it. And I talked to to to, um, uh, to Ben uh, specifically um, about you know the fact that because he was at slam dance for a, a year or two first, he was able to hit the ground running when he got to Sundance. He literally knew like okay, I got to wear what boots to bring, you know, <laughs> what condo to stay at, what publicist to hire, when to get my flu shot. You know, so he was, and I've seen this happen with a lot of slam dance filmmakers. Not only do they do they their subsequent films go to Sundance, but when they do go to Sundance, they do very well there. Like they're the hot films. They're the ones that are winning prizes, getting distribution, you know, getting the buzz because they're not spending three days just, you know, being sick in their condo. You know, they're figuring out how to get from the Eccles to the park library. (laughs) Because I'll be, I'll be honest with you. It's not, it's it's tough to figure out. It is tough to figure out. You know, I I've been here 25 years. (laughs) I still don't know how to buy a ticket to a Sundance film. (laughs) It is so Byzantine, and they make it so hard. It's for very people. strange. There's like a hundred lines there, different kinds of passes, different kinds of tickets. Yeah. And I, every time I walk in, I'm like, I know I have passes, but I don't know where. I know. I, I know mean, you want me to be here, but I don't know where to be. Yeah, I mean, if and as opposed to Slam Dance, where it's like, just show up and buy a ticket and yeah. stand in line. Like it's not that complicated. It's funny about that because I think that the when I walked into Slam Dance and I said, I want to go see such and such. And they said, well, yeah, here's a, it's a box office. Yeah. <laughs> really, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, here's a box office. Here's the theater. Here's the line. And it's all in the same building. Right. Like it's, I mean, Sundance is, you know, so spread out. Like I literally have no idea how to, I mean, how to buy a ticket, where to go to see a movie. 
and I mean, you know, it's not like they're listening to me for advice, but um, I mean, they used to be much more crowded throughout their 10 days. Now they're very crowded in that opening weekend, and then it just drops off. I've noticed. Yeah. And I think, you know, they just, they've priced themselves out of, you know, young people coming to the festival. You know, they can't afford it, so they're going to go to South by, you know. It's hard to get up here and be here. And be here. It's expensive. Time. I um, think the second week, I would encourage people. Yeah to try to come here after the first week, even though that's supposed to be fun. It's kind of madness. It's crazy. And yeah. I would try to come here after all that's died down and see as much as you can. Yeah. Because even though you may not get to eat, you'll get an opportunity to see the movies that are playing here and get a sense of what they are, which I think is invaluable. And if you do, like you said, like learning about how it all works here and like getting an opportunity to get the lay of the land, um, is, it's great. But to me, the thing about, um, the thing about people learning, what, how to get their, a lot of the movies that the established filmmakers who've gone through Sundance and gone on who started in Slamdance, their first movies at Slamdance were opportunities for them to grow and learn. And I think that's an extremely unique opportunity. And if you, as you continue to have the mandate of first-time features that don't have distributions, for anyone out there trying to make a first-time feature, that's, you know, that's the place you want to get it. Because then you're going to get to see what worked and what didn't. It's a, tr it's a place for you to learn. Mm -hmm. As much and grow mm -hmm. as much as it is for you to be seen. Yeah, I mean that's that's what Slamdance is all about, and so because of that, I mean we have some great films this year at Slamdance. Um, you know that y you're going to hear from these filmmakers real soon. You know they are. We, we can already tell like which yeah. ones are going to make their mark. I think that's also cool because you get to see it before you really do get to see the the thing happening before it happens. Yeah, it's a unique opportunity at Slamdance. Yeah, if someone's at Sundance, it's kind of already happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, people that were at the screening, for example, of our competition film, The Vast of Night, last night, are like, "Oh my God, this is the screening that people at Sundance wish they could say they were at." Yeah. You know, when when it happened, because right. this guy, he's already shot his next film. You know, oh, yeah? he's already been hanging out with, you know, people up here. <laughs> uh, but see, that's, the, say anymore. So that's but, the exciting uh, thing. Though, it is exciting. Like we at our, you know, we're press. And so we cover. A, yeah, we cover a lot of Sundance. And back in our apartment, we, we all of us. What have you seen? And someone mentions a title. It's like nobody yeah. else even knows because there's so many things at Sundance right. and they're all over the place. And it's like, was it good? It was okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's, no, like, I mean, it's like yeah. nobody's having that that the magic of discovery, which I think Steven Soderbergh mentioned. Even he, as a fan, it's we all kind of connect to that. I just saw something really cool. I want to yeah. know more about yeah. the person who made that. Yeah, thing. exactly, exactly. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so many films here because, again, we, you know, and we're, we actively help these filmmakers get into other festivals, you know, because we're, you know, we, we don't just sort of let it happen by chance. Yeah. You know, just last night we had like a four hour mixer of other festival programmers meeting Slamdance filmmakers, you know, oh, like literally cool. putting them in a room like a speed dating thing, you know, because uh, we want them to go on right. and, and, and travel the world with their films and, you know, because that's how that's how they're going to have fun. That, that to me sounded like, I think when you told me about that, one of the coolest opportunities up here, it has nothing to do with seeing a movie, but just an opportunity to learn about what people are programming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's invaluable. If you're, if you're thinking about making a short or a feature to find out where it might play, because every festival has different things they're looking for. Yeah. I mean, you just know? last night, like I, you know, I mean, the, the two people that represent the Barbados Film Festival just flew into town yesterday, and I was like, okay, you guys got to come to this, meet this landman's filmmakers, and they had a great time, because yeah. who wouldn't want to go to the Barbados Film Festival? What, what, which was the film festival you were just at? When I Barbados Film yeah, Festival. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so that must yeah. have been nice, right? It's very nice, and a lot warmer than Park City. Um, but <laughs> do that's you, it. Do but, you travel the festivals all year long? Or you just um, yeah, as much as my family lets me, and sometimes I take them with, and then they're yeah. happy with that, too. Um, so, yeah, so I... I, you know, with my last film, Bernard and Huey, uh, which uh, played at 30 festivals on five continents and not the normal five either. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I really traveled around the world with that, which was amazing. Um, but then I also get invited to be on juries at, at festivals sort yeah. of in the off years when I'm not making films, um, you know, or do workshops or, you know, things like that. And, and that's always fun, too. Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K has the professional features needed for feature film, television programming, and documentaries. However, now these same features can be used to revolutionize other types of work, such as blog videos, YouTube content, and more.
The combination of 13 stops of dynamic range, incredible low light performance with dual native ISO up to 25,600 for HDR images and Blackmagic RAW provides feature film images with precise skin tones and beautiful organic colors. Featuring a larger 6144 by 3456 Super 35 sensor and EF lens mount, the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K lets you use larger EF photographic lenses to create cinematic images with shallower depth of field, allowing creative, defocused backgrounds and gorgeous bokeh effects. External controls give quick access to essential functions, while the large 5-inch touchscreen makes it easy to frame shots, focus accurately, and change camera settings. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com to learn more. This podcast is brought to you by the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio, the revolutionary all-in-one podcasting solution from Rode Microphones. With four Class A microphone inputs, eight sound pads to trigger music and effects, the ability to stream phone calls seamlessly, Bluetooth and USB connectivity, multi-track recording, and so much more, it truly is professional podcasting made easy. Plug in your mics, turn up your faders, and hit record. Check it out alongside Rode's other podcasting innovations at rode.com backslash podcasting. One of the, the guest posts you did for us on Bernard and Huey was particularly about shooting a period piece yes. scene <laughs> in a garage in Culver City on 16 millimeter. Yes. Which is like all kinds of production nightmare. And the thing that I loved about it when I read it was that it connected, it, it felt like it connected me to the roots of the things I was trying to do years ago. And the, and the ingenuity or the desire to say, I think I can find a way to make this work. Yeah. You know, like exactly. I think it's actually not that hard. If I know the shots I really need, yeah. I think I can pull this off. And you guys did. Yeah, but like shooting on film, like it's funny because I didn't know when I read that that you'd, know, you'd started at USC making a 35 millimeter view. So for you, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm back on film. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And um, yeah, and it was, yeah, but I hadn't, you know, it had been close to 25 years since I'd shot on film before, <laughs> you know. Um, and and it's, it's funny, you know, people just think, oh, it's just the medium is different. But no, the whole rhythm of the set is very different, you know, like, when does the when do you put the slate in and when where does the boom go? You know you have to rehearse that ahead of time when you're shooting on film. You can't just say oh boom up boom up and like no you're spinning money you're through that money. camera. You um, have to say check the gate at the end. Check the gate, yeah. yeah. And and the actors are like they can hear that money spinning through the camera. You know people forget that f- a film camera is not silent. There is this constant whirring. Yeah. You know it doesn't get picked up exactly by the mic or you hope it doesn't, yeah. but the actors can hear it. The crew can hear it. So, um, so there's all these weird little things that um, that there's a certain energy that you get, and hopefully it's the energy you want. You know, it's different from from shooting digital. Um, but yeah, and that I had forgotten about. And, and in a like, garage, and that's the a, other cool thing. Yeah, and in, in a, a subway. <laughs> and by the way, I don't, I don't even know if I mentioned this in in, in that piece, but our, our garage is a, is a block and a half south of the Sony Studios, you know, which used to be MGM. So <laughs> right. we're a block and a half south of where Wizard, uh, of, Gone, Oz. Wizard of Oz was shot. <laughs> Gone, and Gone with, with the, the Wind. wind. And uh, you know, but technically, since we're south of them, they're in my shadow. So <laughs> I always wake up in the morning. And I go, yeah, the studio's in my shadow. You know, um, I don't know that they ever notice that but whatever you know um but that's you know and that's kind of what slamnitz is like you know slamnitz is uh is at the top of the hill that's in right. park city we're yeah. not at the bottom of the hill um so you know what we, you make runs down the hill and feeds the irrigates yes the that's yes. the metaphor we, we, we're looking for or the snowball we we run it down the hill and it turns into an avalanche by the time it gets to sundance and then eventually all the way down to la yeah <laughs> um it's funny i drive whenever we drive by culver city because my son who's four watch wizard of oz and oh, i great. say like you know that's where they made wizard yeah. of Oz because yeah. i think to him that the idea of that is so bizarre like that behind that wall that's yeah where it was. no it really is and and when you and i and my kids have grown up there and they you know they're just inundated with wizard of oz imagery and and s- stories and yeah. you know the the culver hotel yes. is where the munchkins live yes. that's the munchkin hotel and there's crazy stories of munchkin orgies that you try not to tell the four-year-old about, <laughs> you know. eventually they'll google it but they know and uh <laughs> veterans park there the playground is literally modeled has a, a has a um a 
you know, a, a yellow brick road built into it. Yeah. You know, so there's all these kind of weird things yeah. uh, and stories. That's what's great about living in, in L.A., and I think people don't understand it. I mean, we've got a guy on our block who was a prop master for 50 years on, like, 10 Best Picture winners, you know. Oh, really? Um, so he was in the studio, worked at the yeah, studio. Yeah, in the studio system. And, uh, you know, and people are just around and will tell you stories. You know, yeah. you don't have to go, you don't have to go to film school to learn great, you know, great filmmaking stories. No. You just show up in L.A. and knock on doors. You so, know? yeah, I mean, I didn't go to graduate school, but a good friend of mine went to SC graduate school. Yeah. And I was, we were very fortunate. People were still giving out film to students and shooting films. Yep. So we yeah. got to shoot a short on 35. And it's such a unique cool experience to do anything on film yeah, yeah um but you know as you know you don't may not get that opportunity anymore but it's still it's fun if all you right can. i'm gonna give you one secret promise promise you don't tell anyone this secret okay, okay. all right so this is just between me and no film school <laughs> so um on bernard and huey we uh uh you know we only shot part of the film on super 16 on right. film um, just the flashback scenes. So the rest we shot on the Alexa. Um, but the Vimeo link that we sent to film festivals and to critics, what? first of all, let me ask you, what is the last bit of influence you can give on anyone that's going to review your film? Uh, whether it's a programmer or, or a critic or a distribution executive, what is the last bit of lobbying you can do? The very last thing. All right, you don't know. I'll don't tell know. you. <laughs> it, is, it is what is your password for your Vimeo link? Okay. That is the last thing that they are going to type in before watching a film. Yeah. So the thing we put in for our password was, um, uh, was a f- um, see, I'm not going to say it because then people will get our link. <laughs> is there a anyway, <laughs> so I, let me just say. It's that good the, that you caught yourself. There. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let me just say that the last thing you put on, like pick your Vimeo password very carefully and intentionally. Whatever message you want to send out, to whoever is reviewing your film, that is the last thing that you do. That's really good advice, though, because I never would have thought of that. And yeah. I've gotten a few since I've been up here from people. Oh, you, yeah, get them all the time, you get them all the time. And you don't think about it because right. it's, it's something like the title of the movie. Yeah, title of the movie. Plus or some, a number. <laughs> yeah, or a password or whatever. Yeah, nobody thinks. But, you know, that kind of came it is, from... It is a secret message. It is a secret sense. message. And um, I'm trying to remember who was it. There's a great director. The guy who directed uh, Mystic Pizza, Don... Um, Anyway, I forget his name, but people at home can look him up because I want to attribute it to him. But he said, what is the last, um, he told me, what is the last thing that you say to an actor? The last way that you can, as a director, last way that you influence uh, an actor. You know, you can give a whisper in their ear, tell them backstory, whatever. But the very last thing you say to an actor before they start acting is action. (laughs) So (laughs) because of that, the last like way you can impart an emotion or a tone or a pace is how do you say the word yeah. action? Yeah. Do you say action or action or action? <laughs> you know? um, and it's, I was like, oh my God, that's so genius. You know, it like really everybody, is. no, I'd never thought of that, but it is 100% true. Like you can set the tone of that, of that scene the way you say the word action. And also, is it the director saying it or is it the first AD saying it? Yeah. It should be the director. Yeah. But a lot of sets, it's, you know, the director whispers action and the first AD just bellows it out. I think well, I remember the first time I, rec- I learned about that, yeah. the fact that the director doesn't always do it, was I was watching a making of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom right. Menace. <laughs> and I was like, George Lucas is like sitting very far away in a little video village room. Yeah. And some yeah. other guy is like talking to everybody. Yeah. And it struck me. It was like, oh, that's weird. And that's I, weird. Think, I think the proof is in the pudding. It, it really <laughs> is. It really is because actors can't stand that. I mean, like if you're an actor, you want, you want the director telling you action yeah, or not you, action. That, or, that connection to that person who's connected yeah. to the big picture, literally, yeah. is uh, lost. Right. I've um, never really thought about that that's a way to emotionally connect to them before right. they get into it. Yeah. That's, see, that's the kind of thing you can – and you can only learn how to do that better, I, I would say – not by doing it a lot. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and also you don't have to use the word action. I mean, sometimes I'll say, okie dokie then, <laughs> you know, and like people, you know, they do the cast and the crew kind of know, yeah, I guess that means we're rolling. <laughs> you know? um, or already. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, or you can do, um, you know, and I kind of learned this a little bit from, from Robert Altman, you know, if everyone is mic'd and you're rolling sound, you get the actors kind of improving in character before you you even roll the camera and then you don't want to say action 
loudly you know you just kind of like wave with your hand you know yeah. because you kind of ease into that uh, and he into truly that was the master of creating that multi-tracked mm-hmm, mm-hmm. vibe of everybody just kind of living in the moment yeah. of the scene and yeah. like we ease into it as we watch it right. happening and it was and i really only appreciated that when i directed uh sally kellerman who was you know yeah. oscar nominee from from mash for hot lips but she was in my film open house my real estate musical and she was playing kind of a drunk realtor. And all the, like, really younger, you know, everyone else was, was younger on set. You know, all the actors were like, Dan, what, what, this is, has Sally been drinking? You know, she seems like she's, you know, kind of in character, you know, a little bit. I was like, no, she was trained by Altman to stay in character before the take. Not just after the take, but before the take. And so, and they're like, oh, I get it. Because we're rolling sound, you know, because you roll sound before you roll picture. And um, and so I learned a lot from her, you know, and and the other actors, these younger actors, they learned a lot from her. You know, yeah. stay in character longer, you know, before and after the. Can, take. You can't. It's so cool that you had an opportunity to get to know and learn directly from yeah. Robert Altman. Yeah. As sort yeah. of like a godfather of your own filmmaking. Yeah. He is really, in a lot of ways, the like the early father of indie filmmaking as a spirit. He really, know? yeah, and that's why you know. When we were getting ready to start Slamdance, um, you know, I mentioned we'd met all these other filmmakers that were excited about Slamdance, but then a lot of them had second thoughts. They were like, oh, sh-. and actually one of them was here in Park City yesterday. I was talking to him, and he remembered. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, we thought we were going to get blacklisted by Sundance. <laughs> so they pulled out of Slamdance right. at, at, at the last minute. And so we were, so Dana called his grandfather, um, Robert Altman, and said, Bob, you know, what should we um, you know, there's people having second thoughts about this thing. Are, you know, are we going to piss off Robert Redford? Are we going to piss off Sundance? And Robert Altman just thought about it for a minute and goes, yeah, fuck him. <laughs> and that was, for us, that was the blessing of the Pope of Indie Film. You know, and then we said that to all the other filmmakers, and they were like, yeah, I guess if Robert Altman is supportive if of If Robert us, Altman says fuck him. Yeah, then, yeah, and then after the festival, you know, then Soderbergh, you know, basically said the same thing, and Richard Linklater said the same thing, and we are like, Okay, if we if we have the blessing of the old guard indie filmmakers and the new guard indie filmmakers, we're we're doing something right. You yeah. know, we don't know what. <laughs> yeah, no, I but. mean that it's there's a it's it's for good reason. There is a culture of of carefulness about the industry because you work mm-hmm. with everybody again. You want to make sure you're good with everybody. Yeah, you want to make yeah. sure you have opportunities and you don't turn anybody off to you. It's, you don't know where your next job is, etc. Right. This is all true, but it's very cool when there are people who are willing to take risks with their career or their name because in the name of what they believe in, like yeah. Robert Altman. So, yeah. and like a lot of the people at Sundance, you guys, the founders of Sundance, right. it's one of the best, or Slamdance, I'm sorry, <laughs> the founders yeah. of Slamdance. It's one of the cool things to say, we'll take that risk because what's at stake here is the independent voice. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that said, 25 years later, Robert Altman's dead and I'm still blacklisted. But <laughs> um, but in theory, it's worked out great. <laughs> you know, so, can't That's everything. Um, Did Robert Altman ever have a Sundance? No, probably not, right? Well, he, he'd had films at Sundance. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and he'd worked with Redford before, but he had no great allegiance to them you know yeah and he was also like a constant risk taker with whatever he was doing oh yeah and you know and look at 85 he told me look man it doesn't get any fucking easier you know (laughs) like he he was still struggling to get financing on every film struggling you know he was firing agents you know and hiring (laughs) new agents and you know and that was at once depressing but also like encouraging i was like oh if I'm suffering the same scars, and I had this conversation with Soderbergh the other day, I was told him the same story from Altman. He said, and he's like, yeah, exactly. It's just, it doesn't get any easier. But on, on the other hand, that we're all in this together. Like it's, you know, that's encouraging. If it's not easier for those guys, for Altman or Soderbergh, and they're suffering the same problems of financing and casting and, you know, material, you know, it's like, oh, well, I, I, I guess I'm as as bad situation as they are, so that's good. Yes, for it's me. Yeah, it is it inspiring. It should be inspiring. It makes it me is. feel better about anything. It does, it's yeah. It's like, it's like, well, I guess then, because I think people have a tendency to believe that someone like that is just kind of cruising. Yeah. They're really not. No, they're not. No, I mean, that's, that's why the best ad- advice that Altman ever gave me was, you know, look, uh, set your start date and tell everyone the train's leaving the station. And either they're on board or they're not on board, you know, and then just stick to that start date 100%. And I, you know, I mean, Dana and I have, have stuck with that with our films, you know, and that's how we've been able to get, you know, an amazing cast and these low budget movies um, because we stick to that start date and we just, 
you know. What's, what's, you seem like a man who's extremely laid back and low stress. Do you find when you're on set, is that just today and now, or in general when we've been in communication, no, when you're no. on set, are you stressed? Or do you maintain this kind of cool demeanor? I do, I think. Because independent yeah. filmmaking, at least in my experience, is very hard to be at the center, calm at the center of that storm. It is very hard. And I try to be very calm <laughs> as much as I can. Um, uh, and I think I've gotten better at that, you know, at, at sort of staying calm when every all the shit is flying around, you know. And and I think part of it is is having had the experience of making a few films. Like I know that, you know, if something f- freaks out, like you know, if something falls through, like that is not the end of the world, you know. I mean, I always say like when you're making an independent film or any film or even a studio film, you know, everything will fall through. Your actors, your cast, your locations, your camera, you know, your financing, definitely. You know, everything is going to fall through. But as long as they don't all fall through the same day, you're okay. You know, and that is, and, and sort of knowing that and, 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 and keeping that in the back of your head is like, all right, we're out of money today, but we have our camera. So we're going to shoot today. Tomorrow we'll worry about the money, you know. Or that's that's like the best advice, I, I think, because it's like I remember once being on a set and it started raining and it was like, well, we can still shoot something. We still have a cast. We still yeah, have a camera. exactly. Still, but I don't think we thought of it that way. We were more just like in a panic over the misery of the one thing that befell us. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. If you can maintain the like, most things are good today. Yeah. Then you can survive. Then you're good. Yeah. And you just have to be an eternal optimist about it. And, um, you know, and also knowing that, you know, like your first draft of your script is going to suck because by definition, it's called the first draft, you know. Mm. Likewise, you know, the old adage, there's nothing as good as your dailies and nothing as bad as your first cut. Like, (laughs) yeah, your first cut is going to suck because it's the first cut, you know. And sort of, you know, knowing that and telling your collaborators, hey, that's okay, you know, it will get better. That's a sage play. That's a real Zen and the art of independent filmmaking, because I think it's very hard to get to a place where you can look at those things and not be crushed. Oh yeah. Cause it is. Cause it's disappointing. You have an idea of what it should be. Yeah. Likewise, your first bad review is only your first bad review. There will be more bad. (laughs) Wait a minute. That doesn't really, that's not exactly the same. I think that was, that's an echo too far, but um. (laughs) that's an echo of something Steven Soderbergh said the other day though, too, which felt very in line with the spirit of slam dance to me, which was like, I don't feel like I'm taking risks because the risk is just that someone doesn't like it and who cares? (laughs) Sort of like, wow, that's a great place to, to, to to be able to rest in to say, and then he said something like, well, if there's five in a row, maybe that nobody likes, that's a problem. But like if you, but right. it's true. It's like, if you can survive that, you know, you're not jumping out of a plane. You're just, you know, maybe people don't like your movie. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's crushing still. You know? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I've, I've asked, um, you know, uh, Jules Pfeiffer, you know, who's, yes. who's a great playwright and novelist and cartoonist. And, and I've asked him, like, do you read reviews, you know? And he said when he's working on a play, he absolutely does not read the review. You know, even if it, uh, even if it's a good review, because you don't want it to influence, you know, while you're working on it. I said, well, what about a movie? When you know, in a movie, the, the film's done. You can't change anything. You know, he's like, well, I try not to read those reviews either, unless it's a really good one. Then I, you know, <laughs> then I'll read. It. Um, yeah, I mean, but, sometimes they're really good, and it does it has a negative effect. Yeah, it can. I, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's I mean, a I, really cool collaboration, by the way, that you got with Oh, me. thanks. Yeah, and, I, I, and I, was did, I don't know. Did you see the video I posted on, on Facebook the other day? Um, we were screening the film um, uh, Lost Holiday. I think that's the name of it. Um, it's a slam dance competition film, really great film done by the Matthews brothers. Um, and uh, and actually their father, Chris Matthews, MSC, NBC I, host, was, yes. in, was in the room. Wow. And um, it was, was very cool. Uh, supporting his sons anyway but it happened to be on Jules Pfeiffer's 90th birthday so I while I was doing the introductions for that screening so I got my cell phone called up Pfeiffer who was at a birthday party in the Hamptons (laughs) and held it up to the mic and you know put on speakerphone and I said Jules we just wanted to say from slam dance happy birthday and everyone in the room yelled out happy birthday Jules you know that's really and um and it was great he really appreciated that because he's he's been a fan of slam dance you know his daughter had a film here oh yeah he's amazing he's my one of my son's favorite books yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) he's a special creative yeah source so and I think it was really nice for everyone in the room to be able to like go 
Yeah. And they, they were like, oh, my God, this guy's, like, partying, like, <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and he's at, at 90, you know. Yeah. Um, so what's the next film? This, for me? Yeah. Uh, I am working on a uh, 1974 Watergate period piece thriller. Oh, well, good and, timing. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm working on it with uh, my friend Daniel Moya. He and I are writing the script. And our friend Terry Keefe owns, has a great um, motel in the Hamptons that we're going to shoot it at. Oh, yeah? Um, and, uh, yeah, and again, these are all, you know, sort of... Period sleep. is, I, I admire the, I love the willingness to throw yourself into indie and period at the same time. Well, I think what it was was, you know, like that, um, like the, the subway scene in the garage, uh, it was easier than I thought it would be. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't have to be afraid of shooting a period piece, you know, because I... I I was, you know, well, as an indie all, filmmaker. All of Hollywood is afraid. If you go yeah. in and tell people, any producer you meet with, and you say, like, oh, it's, they're like, uh, uh, that just tripled the budget. <laughs> yeah. you know? But it doesn't have to. You're it, right. Yeah, it doesn't have to. I mean, if you think about what do you need to do a period movie, it's the location, the costumes, the vehicles, you know. But if you got two or three of those in the bag, which in our case we do, our friend's motel is looks like it's from 1974. So... He's the one who said, hey, Dan, I've got this great motel, the Silver Sands Motel in, in, in Greenport, New York. Um, and he gets a lot of, like, fashion shoots there. And he said, but no one's ever shot a feature here. You know, if you want to come in winter and shoot a feature, you know, just come up with a script that looks like 1974. And I was like, and I worked backwards from there. That's I was like, well, I've got a location. So cool. <laughs> uh, now I just need a script, you know. Yeah. And uh, what happened in 1974? Ah, Watergate. You know, okay, <laughs> so now I've got, like, a theme, and a, you know, and we just needed to, a plot. And that was it. It's so. very cool. That uh, that's you know I talk to filmmakers when I talk to filmmakers, I often ask them where like where the inspiration starts with yeah. the script, and you hear interesting things like it's not just an idea; it's something like a design. In yeah, this case, right. it's a location. Location. It's yeah. an opportunity to shoot something that will really look like it's in 1974. Is such a golden opportunity. Right. But then just well, what's the best story I can come yeah. up with in this and, space? And that goes back to the very first film I, I, I made, Omaha the movie. And that started because my friend Phil said, Hey Dan, we we've got uh there's this great place in western Nebraska called Carhenge, which is an exact replica of Stonehenge built with old American cars stuck in the ground. <laughs> and he said, Oh, let's shoot a music video there and I was like, No, that's too good for a music video. Let's shoot a feature there. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. And it's still to this day the only feature that's been shot there. That's and, cool. uh, and so and it still looks good and it looks kind of timeless because of that, you know. What so, are you gonna shoot on? That's going to be tricky, right? That I don't know. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons I'm in Park City is to meet DPs. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we'll shoot on film, but maybe not. You yeah. Know, I don't, you There's know, a I'm lot not, you can do, you know, in yeah. terms of creating the look. Right? Yeah, and a lot of it is lenses. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people don't give that enough credit. I mean, uh, Sean Baker, uh, who's a Slam Dance alum and a, good, and a good friend of mine, he his film uh, Starlet, which was like three films ago for him, you know, before Florida Project and Tangerine, um, he, you know, he shot that on, a, on like a Sony camera, but the lenses he used were like Russian Lomo lenses that had been smuggled through Bollywood and into <laughs> into he found them in a storage yard in in the valley or something like that, you know, and uh, but they gave such an, an amazing look to to that film that was so unique and you wouldn't have thought it was shot on like a Sony. I've heard a lot of DPs and filmmakers camera. say that the lens choice they use it to to comp like whatever they're shooting their whatever camera they're using, yeah. the lenses are where they sort of make the decision that gives them the look that yeah. they're going Oh, for. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And, uh, you know, and we were lucky on Bernard and Healy. We, you know, we shot with the Alexa, but we, we used uh, Panavision anamorphic primos. It was literally the same lens set that J.J. Abrams shoots, you know, the big flary right. movies. You know? <laughs> and it was like, hey, we got the J.J. lenses, you know. <laughs> but not that many people use them, so we were able to get them for not much more than any other lens. You yeah. know? Um, but they, you know, they lent a, a, a great quality and, and a timelessness to you know, to, to those scenes. And then we used essentially the same lenses on the Super 16. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Somehow they fit or I don't know exactly yeah. how it works. But anyway. Um, but on the other hand, you, then it meant that we didn't have a zoom. So it's like, right. OK, well, all right. So we're going to do lots of optical zooms, you know, yeah. or, or digital zooms yeah. in post. So. Um, so yeah, it, but it definitely informs a lot of the creative decisions. So like those lenses do this cool thing. Uh, which for many people is frustrating. They they distort when you rack focus, mm -hmm. 
um, which which regu- which non anamorphic lenses don't do. Um, and my DP was like Todd. And he was like, "Oh yeah, you know they do this weird distortion, so we gotta be careful when we rack." And I was like, "No, that's cool distortion. Let's do more of it." You know? Yeah, that's the thing. I think they call it like breathing. The lens breathes a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Like, I love when I see that. It's great personally. And, it's because to me, it's sort of like it makes me more aware of the filminess. I don't yeah. know what else to it call is, it. It is. It is. And and um, and and, uh, and there's some shots in in the film where people have said to me in Q and A's like, "Oh, what was that? <laughs> you know, After Effects VFX <laughs> filter you did to do that weird distortion thing?" I was like, "That's nothing. That is the lens. Yeah, did that all on its own. That's something know? in the visual language of filmmaking we're familiar with because some older movies have yeah, that. Exactly. That we became accustomed to seeing yep, a certain yep. kind of movie from certain eras, yeah. and it's like ingrained in our minds when we see it yeah no there's there's weird things like that like um uh halation which is like this like if you have a on film uh you know it was back in the film era uh you know when you shot a um a a shot of headlights you would see this weird double of the headlights um you don't get that on on digital yeah you know but if you want to sort of evoke evoke things like little things like that or like the fact that an optical zoom uh, makes the grain bigger Mm-hmm. Well, now people are trying to get rid of grain, you know, and they're like, oh, you can't do digital zoom. It makes the grain bigger. And I was like, no, I want to do that. I want, you know, yeah. and so we did that even with the Alexa shots, you know, we, we were able to zoom in and get, and get better grain and, yeah. or bigger grain. And, and that, that evokes again, a certain era when those optical, it's just um, like using it's essentially used. like when people want to use like a sepia or something, it's like, it yeah. just creates a look from a specific Yeah, time. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, anyway. this has been amazing. Oh, well, thank I you. I really George. appreciated yeah. you doing it. We got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, good luck editing. Yeah.